Welcome everybody to The Great Sources, Season 3, Episode 15, third out of our four-part series on the Sefer Munaharama of the first rabbit. I hope we can complete this in four lectures. It might take one extra one. This is a very, very dense Sefer. And to remind you what we're doing here, what the Sefer is about, if you made it thus far in studying the Munaharama with us, that means you covered the first mimer, the first essay in the Munarama, the first of three essays in the Munarama. The first of three essays was a very dense introductory course to Aristotelian philosophy, to the philosophy, to the amount of philosophy, the nature of the type of philosophy that, according to the Ravid, is necessary for the grand prize, which we're going to begin today, and that is understanding the principles of faith. So if you've made it this far, you have the introduction. And to remind you of the structure of the book in general, which is made up of three essays, the structure of this book, Amunarama, is dedicated to answering a very simple question, which is the dichotomy between God's omniscience, assumed omniscience, and man's free will. Does man have free will, or does God know and control everything? So that's what the book is dedicated to answering that question. But in order to answer that question, we have to start at the beginning. And the beginning doesn't just mean we have to, we have to explore all the fundamentals of Judaism, which it does. The most fundamental ideas of Judaism are explored in depth in what we're going to discuss today, second essay. But in order to do that, he first gives us the introduction of Aristotelian philosophy. So if you went through the first essay with us, then you have the background necessary to plunge into the second essay, which we're going to do shortly. If you don't, you still can jump right in and try to pick it up as you go on. I will say that this is an amazing study, the second essay of the Munarama, in which he's going to go through six principles. One is the root of belief, and that's about God's existence. The second one is, the second principle is the unity of God third principle is uh, talking about God's attributes and how it can be described. The fourth principle is how God acts and how all of reality follows from God. Um, the fifth one is about prophecy, how prophecy happens and how we can know who and who is not a prophet. The sixth one is about comparing God to other things. Now, so what we're going to do today, we're not going to finish the whole second essay. We'll leave some of that for next time. But today, if you are with me, you are going to learn a really comprehensive study, analysis, and explication of what we mean when we talk about God, what we mean when we say God is one, what angels are, and how reality emanates from God. So this is the most fundamental of fundamentals, and this is an amazing statement of Jewish faith according to the Ravid, which is a precursor to the Rambam, the Maimonides, as we discussed last time. And this is a, uh, I, 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 in my opinion, what we're going to study now is almost cannot be matched in terms of its clarity of the statement of these principles. Because even in the Guide for the Reflex, which is going to be our next study, Maimonides assumes that you know a lot of philosophy. And he doesn't take you through the uh, philosophical application or, or the philosophical statement of ideas in the Torah in the same methodical way that the Amunarama does, which we're going to see right now. And with that, I'm going to jump right in and um, let the Ravid speak for himself and take us through this amazing journey and give us a sense of what 
the existence of God means, what the unity of God means, what angels are, what descriptions of God we can use, etc. So he says the following. He says, and the Ravid's rule, his, his, his approach is, he starts with philosophy, starts with thinking, and then shows that there are psukim that support the philosophical ideas. So he says the following. He says, if you see in reality some perfection that follows imperfection, and you can see a hierarchy of perfection, then you have to know that the highest perfection is the tachs, it is the purpose. So he says, look, you can see a hierarchy in reality. The lowest level of being is hyalic matter. That is to say, the matter that is shared by all of the four elements. Because it doesn't have its own existence. It's rather the basic substrate, let's say, of all the elements. Then the elements are more better, more refined than that, because they exist as discrete entities. They have a form. Okay. Next is composite. Things that are composed of the elements are more complex. Next is our plants, because they not only are uh, composite, but they grow. Next is living things, that is to say, inanimate, they're the animals that don't speak, because they have a life force. And then the greatest thing in reality is humans, because humans can speak. There is nothing in reality, says the Ravid, higher than human being. And that tells us then, and um, I should qualify that, we're talking about the sublunar world. We're not talking about the angelic world, which we're going to learn later, what angels are. And those are indeed of a higher uh, being than humans. We're talking about what the, um, the, the world under the lunar sphere, or what we would call planet Earth, let's say. So therefore, it says the Ravid, uh, all of reality, all of nature, the purpose of all of that is man. Because he says, when you see some highest level where things end, that must be the purpose, because if the purpose was something better than man, then then reality, nature, would have kept on, let's use the word, uh, evolving into something higher than man. And if there's something lower than man, if the purpose is something lower than man, then why does nature continue to develop things in higher complexity than that which is lower than man? It must be then that man is the purpose. And this, he says, is a philosophical, logical argument. Similarly, he says, at man contains contains all the elements because he has within the plant growth he has uh, the living force and he has also the power of speech okay now the power of speech which is also means the intellect um that's the greek word logos first thought and speech has two aspects two aspects so i would say one aspect of the intellect is that man receives wisdom from the angels now that might sound strange to you. What do you mean man receives wisdom from the angels? No angel ever came to you and told you something. But we're going to learn what angels are. And then you'll understand how the Ravid's perception, how the Ravid's understanding of the world is such that the human intellect is actually in, in conversation with angels. Okay? So the intellect, on the one hand, receives from what's above it, which is the angels. And it also has a kind of influence or relationship with what is below it because it rules over all the other forces. It, it arranges all the other elements. I don't mean elements as in the four elements, I mean all the other aspects of reality are arranged according to man's wisdom. So wisdom then, so wisdom then has this aspect where it receives from what's above, but also controls what's below. Wisdom is man's purpose and highest level. What kind of wisdom are there? So there's various levels of wisdom, the highest of which is the knowledge of God. While the human body is like a person's animal, 
upon which his wisdom rides. And here the Raiva takes that very nice an analogy, takes it further. He says, some people spend their whole life feeding their animal lots of hay. And that's an, a, a parable for people who only consider food and drink. Some of them think about making their animal beautiful, giving it a nice, uh, a nice saddle. And those are people who think about, who make their focus having nice clothing. Some of them a little better and they think about, well, how come animal gets sick? Now can I keep it healthy? What food is best for my animal? Those are doctors, says the writer, who only care about the human body. Now, that's a very important chachma. It's a very important wisdom, very beneficial for this world because that's what keeps a person alive in this world. And by staying alive in this world, man reaches the highest level of life, which is the next world. Um, so, so the medicine is important. Medicine also, it keeps people alive. It keeps people who serve God alive. It's very important, but it's not the end game. And if a person only focuses his whole life on medicine, he's cheating himself. Some people, he says, spend their lives on something that's even less important than, than medicine, like people who spend their whole lives on grammar and teach it to others. Some people spend their life thinking about mathematics, uh, complicated mathematical questions, that, and here he gives an example of some uh, arithmetic kind of question which might never happen and um, or, or other kinds of geometrical problems which which never occur the only ones that are really necessary says the rabbit are those that are useful for astronomy of course today that is, we see there's greater need in mathematics than that but that's the point of the rabbit is you have to always look at the purpose and here he gives a, a very interesting example I don't know where this comes from he gives this this whole parable of uh, someone who once told his slave, a Muslim who told his slave, that he's going to free him. And he's actually going to not only free him, but he's going to make him into a king if he does the Hajj, he makes his way to uh, Mecca. And if he goes around, goes around the, I don't know what it's called, he does that uh, circuit around in Dina, Mecca, then, um, then he's going to be Free, he'll free him and he'll actually make him a king. If he reach, if he takes the journey, but doesn't make it to Mecca, he'll free him, but will make him a king. And if he doesn't let him go, he doesn't even go on the journey. He won't even free him. So basically, the slave has the greatest opportunity in the world if he takes the journey and makes that that route, that circuit around um, the, the religious practice. And but of course, you can't just pick up and go. First thing is that he has to make sure he has food for the trip. He has to make sure he has a mode of transport. And then he has to actually start traveling. And then he has to go make that circuit. And for each of these things, take a lot of steps. And the first step, like the most basic first step in anything, he calls the pitol hachutim, the uh, spinning of threads. Because in order to transport water for his trip, he needs a flask. For a flask, you need threads. And uh, for threads, you need, to, you need to spin them. So imagine if he spends his whole life spinning threads. Say, well, that's spinning threads very important. Yes, but it's only a means. And then he gives this whole example. Um, and each each kind of person who spends his life with different kinds of things are correspond to some level of the of that slave who has his preparation. Of course, we have this opportunity to perfect ourselves and earn eternity. And obviously, it's necessary to take care of ourselves, necessarily to make the preparatory wisdoms and preparatory actions in order for us to attain eternity but let's not get stuck on that that's the basic idea 
And then he says, he talks about um, medicine as being this preparatory kind of wisdom and also knowledge of the law. And he says, because both knowledge of the law and, and, and medicine are only necessary to solve a problem. Because if everyone would be good and everyone would be healthy, there wouldn't be a need for um, the law of medicine and healing. Okay? And he says, let's say, if someone is always looking into the wisdom of the law and spending all this time about those complicated questions which will never come up, never did happen, never will happen, and thinking to themselves, okay, they're refining their, their intellect by doing that, is in fact, they're in fact wasting their time. And this is an idea we saw in the Vesel of Others, the uh, duties of the, of the mind, where the idea is that the study of the law is not an end unto itself, and there are more important things to do than study those abstruse kind of cases that never did and never will happen. They're necessary as preparation. The law is necessary as, as preparation, but it's not the final purpose. And he says the following. He says, first, a student of the Torah first should know the proof, how to disprove those who deny God or deny prophecy or deny reward and punishment or deny the, uh, the world to come. And then, after you already mastered all that, after you mastered all that, if you spend your time on those firing kinds of, um, those abstruse kinds of studies about those rare cases, that's fine. And that's what Chazal says in Pekiyavis, You should learn a lot of Torah, but know what to answer that Pekiyavis, which Pekiyavis means an Epicurean, he says. Um, and the idea is that, okay, you should study a lot of Torah, but more importantly, or more prime of prime importance, something that takes primacy, to the study of the law and all its complexity is to know the basics the basic fundamentals of Judaism but not just to know them but to be able to defend them from the detractors who are going okay so what's analogous to the slave who actually makes it there and does the circuit is someone who has perfect knowledge of God perfect knowledge of God someone who knows God is the most noble of wise people and that's because he has the most noble wisdom knowing the most noble thing but he says the following he says to, knowledge, to have knowledge of God it's not enough to read this book don't think if you're going to read this book you're going to have the knowledge of God you can't reach the knowledge of God by reading a book the only way you reach the knowledge of God is by reading and thinking deeply into what you read which is really amazing and, and the more you do this by the way the more you'll understand it this is not you know as much as we're spending time here just giving you a familiarity of these texts these texts open up your mind to a way of thinking that um, really become this personal kind of experience. You know, it's not two people who know the same text, let's say, two people who learned that when I wrote, but you can't say, well, they both learned it and they both know it. It's not about knowing it, it's about really internalizing it. And it really opens up your mind. I hope to impart some of that to you today. That the ideas that he's going to teach us are ideas that are meant to change the way you think. And he gives an interesting example. He says, you know, you can read a lot of medicine books. You can spend all your time reading medicine books, but uh, that doesn't mean you'll be able to heal anyone. So the idea is that it's not just book knowledge. Rather, knowing God is a form that your soul will take. It's a form that your soul takes. It's an amazing idea. And he says the way your soul takes that form is when you remove from your soul the, the um, deficient kind of attributes, characteristics. Prepare it. You prepare your soul, knowing what's in books, and preparing it. Then it's going to have a flow, a shefa, of the of the of the sweetness of God, and you reach the highest level of, of man. Okay, 
And then he reads this into the Pasuk in Yemiah. And by the way, this is something that the Guide for the Plex does too. And this is one of the places that I see very close parallels between the Guide and the Ravid. Because the Pasuk in Yemiah, where Yemiah says that, Al Yishalil Asheba, a person, let not the rich man be proud of his riches. Let not the strong man be proud of his strength, nor the wise man of his wisdom. Rather, the only thing worth being proud of is knowledge of God. So he goes through each of these things. He says the riches is referring to um, the the faculty of desire, the strength is referring to the faculty of life, um, wisdom is referring to, obviously, the the, the fact that man is logical, intellectual. The only thing that you should know, I mean, the highest level of, of perfection is knowledge of God. And then he says, the passage continues, and says, know God, for he is Hashem who does chesed, does kindness, which means that the ultimate purpose of knowing God is to emulate God. That is the ultimate purpose of how important it is to know God, he says, well, if the Pasuk tells us if there's a great mitzvah to love God with all your heart, that means you must know God because you can't have a great love for something that you don't know. You can't have a great love for something that you're not even sure exists. And I think that's a very interesting point to think about, that we have to be certain about God's existence, says the Rabbi Vivid, and I think it's a great point, not just because it may, it may or may not be a mitzvah to know that, but in order to truly love God, you have to start with a strong base of knowledge. Simply, what do you mean when you talk about God, and how do you, why do you think about God as existing? I think that's a very obvious and true point. You can't really love God if you're not certain of His existence. But then he says, like the following, this great caveat. He says the first thing to know about God is to know for certain that's impossible to know God's essence. Okay. And, and that, why is it impossible to know God's essence? That's something people bandy about a lot. The rabbit explains the reason why is because to define something, you have to, this comes from Aristotle, like, like many things the rabbit say, to define something, to designate what it is, you have to figure out what class it's a part of and then, and then like carve it off from that class to say what differentiates it from the greater class. Something which is not part of a greater class cannot be defined, can't be given a get there, a definition. So, of course, getter means offense, and definition means it comes from finite to define something, to give it an, an end. So, it has to start somewhere and end somewhere else. I mean, it's part of a class, and you, and you carve it off and say exactly where it fits in. So, you can't do that about God, he's not part of a class. All we can do is know his existence. And this is the introduction, what we just did is the introduction to the second essay. And now we jump into the first principle of the second essay. And the first principle is the root of belief. The root of belief is, of course, the existence of God. Fundamental principle of Jewish belief. Okay, so let's jump in. He says, The Hamoin, the Hamoin means the masses, they accept the knowledge of God as something that they just accept. In other words, something that they're taught in school and therefore they just accept it. And the reason why they accept it and are not familiar with it in a direct way, in an in a, in a, in a intellectual way, is because the masses consider that anything that's not physical does not exist. But then we tell them, Well, you know, there's a God, okay, fine. Father taught me that, my Rebbe taught me that, so they accept that. But that's um, not a true knowledge. <clears throat> and that's described by the Prophet as being respecting God with your mouth, but being far from it in your heart. So people who are morally, not the masses, they know God through his actions. They infer. In other words, they, they, they understand that just because something is physical, it could exist, and they infer the existence of God from his actions. And that's what Torah teaches us in numerous places that look at the world and you'll see that there's God who created it. But it says that belief in and of itself doesn't tell us 
that God is not physical. And this is a very important point. A lot of people talk about God and say, you know, okay, like, things about existence only prove that there's some other power, but then you have questions about that power, that power itself is begging the question. And really, um, a lot of times that comes from not understanding what we mean by God. And this is essentially what the Bible is saying. If what we mean by God is that we can infer that there's something other than what we see, but what is that other thing? And what is it different than what we see? In order to know that, we need to really understand this belief about God much better, and that's where he's going right now. So, and here we're drawing on, here's the writer starts drawing on heavily the introductory essay, which was all the philosophy, but we're going to gloss over the philosophy because I'm going to assume you know it from there, or we'll follow in on the basic outline, even if you don't get the exact points. So, it's been proven, says the writer, that all motion has to eventually reach first mover that doesn't move. Now, okay, fine. So there has to be an unmoved mover. Could, there, could the unmoved mover be more than one? Could it be physical? So he says, well, it can't be physical because anything physical is finite. And anything finite cannot have infinite power. And the unmoved mover moves infinitely. Also, since the unmoved mover doesn't move, that means that, that time doesn't change him, which means it's infinite. And if it's infinite, it can't be physical, <clears throat> because something physical cannot have an infinite power. Okay, another argument, another way to approach this. Everything that exists has a cause and effect. For example, a person's father is his proximate cause. Now, some things are possible, F. Sherman says, they may or may not exist. Some things, um, and some things that don't exist due to some cause, that's called Mechuyvametzias, that which must exist. Must exist. Now, of those things that exist, we see that they are things that didn't exist and were brought into existence are clearly. F Sharim and is clearly only have the possibility of existing and then are brought into existence. Right? Because let's say a tree once didn't exist and now it does, so it's clearly not it's not something that must exist, rather right? something that may or may not exist and became came to exist. Then there are other things that always exist, but their existence didn't come from themselves. It's given to them from something else. Those are what we call angels, as we shall see. They never cease to exist, but their existence only comes from something else. And what that means is we're going to see exactly what that means very soon. But that means in their essence, they are Efshoimitzis. Due to their essence, they only have the possibility of existence. But then they're given existence, given absolute existence, and never changes from God. Okay. What about things that cannot exist? Well, nothing that exists has the impossibility of existence because they don't exist. Okay. So now, is there something that must exist? It must be because if everything was only possibly existent, but there was nothing that must exist, then everything would ha need something else to be have been brought into this in some sort of cause. And there can't be an infinite causal chain, therefore there must be something which is and that is God. That is to say, God is that which exists not because it was given existence to something else, but rather, but rather, 
uh, it exists due to the fact that it's within its essential nature to exist. And this first cause, which we call the Mechir is this which must exist, is what gives everything its perfection, because it makes all motion, and motion is what makes things happen. Perfection. Then he brings Psukim, again, as he always does, he starts with philosophy, and then he shows that the Psukim say the same thing, that everything is dependent on God, and he brings Psukim to, to make that point. For example, the Pasuk, says, the whole world, the Pasuk in Tehillim, it says, the whole world will cease to exist, um, while God will continue to exist. That Pasuk is making the point that only God is only God must exist. Everything else was only granted existence, but has no essential character or, or law of existence in and of itself. And that is the end of the first principle. Now we establish God. And now we're going to establish the unity of God and what we mean by God being one. And here we're going to get, you know, you might think when you say Shema, and I, I gave a share about this once, the meaning of the first passage of Shema. We typically think about it as Hashem Echad, meaning there's only one God, not another one. But what the Rav is going to do over here, and the Rambam does this in the first parak of Siddhartha, is take the meaning of Echad much further than just to mean there's no other God, and tell us what it says in being very, very fundamental about Hashem. So first he goes into the idea of, of what does it mean that something is one? So let's say, you know, you could talk about um, Reuben and Shimon are one, in that they both have uh, sheer equality of, human, of being human. But that's not really one, right? Because um, they're not—they're not essentially one. They just share a certain quality. Even you could say, Reuben is white and a stone is white. That's not an essential kind of oneness. Because Reuben and Shimon are, and Reuben and the stone are certainly not the same thing. Now you could talk about something, let's say, well, one body, one person, right? Say, oh, that's one. The person's one. But that's not really one either, because he's made up of many parts. Well, certainly you can't say uh, one group because that's certainly made up of many parts. Well, there are some things that, let's say, have a chemical um, chemical compound where they actually come together, but still you can tease out that it's comprised of many parts, so it's not truly one. But what about ear or water or some, 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 some element, pure element, that's also not uh, truly one because anything is actually composite. Anything is actually comprised of its material and its form. Okay. Well, what about a surface? So is the surface one? No, because it can be divided. Any line can be divided. So anything which is in the physical world or, or, or in the physical world is not truly one. He doesn't talk about a point here, interestingly, which of course is the, it would be the next step, so I'm not sure why not. Now, what about angels? What are angels? So we're going to get to this soon, but angels are intellects, disembodied intellects, pure intellects. So are those one? So he says, no, even an angel is not truly one because an angel essentially doesn't have existence, as we discussed earlier. It's essentially F. Sherman's, it may or may not exist, but it was granted existence from God. So any angel, even though an angel is the most pure, simple thing, its existence is, in a certain sense, composite because from in its essence it doesn't have existence but it was granted existence by God and there's two parts to it and therefore anything that depends on something else for existence which is anything but God is not truly one only only that which must exist can be truly one and now he's going to show now in the second chapter of the second echo second echo we're proving the unity of God and now in the second chapter the second chapter is going to say that 
okay, has been proven that the only thing that might be one is that which must exist. And now he's going to say it has to be one. It has to be one. And when we talk about one here, see, we're not we mean there's not another one. We'll get to that soon. We mean it is one. It is not composite. And here's the proof. Because if there's something that must exist, and that thing itself is composite, well then its existence would depend on its two elements being brought together. And therefore it wouldn't be it wouldn't be something which exists due to its essence. It would need something prior to it to, to bring it into existence. And the whole point was that it has to be something that's prior, which is <coughs> what must exist. Okay. Well, maybe there are two of these things. Maybe there are two of these what we call gods. And that can't be either. And here's why. Because these two things that are which are the both absolutely simple, right? Now, if they're abs if they're if they are both something but one is different than the other in a certain way then that means that it's composite and nothing that's composite can be can exist because it must exist and if there's nothing about it different than the first thing then it is the first thing because two things that are similar have to have something different about them if there's nothing about them that they're different than they are then you're talking about the same Therefore, there cannot be two gods. It's only one God, and that's the truest unity and has no multiplicity. Third chapter of the second year. And here he talks about that the unity of everything else besides for God is a mikra. Remember, a mikra means an accident, something that's not essential to a thing. While the unity of God is not an accident because God doesn't take accidents. So first, let's talk about that. How do we know that the unity of everything else is an accident? Because, let's say a, a human being, so you have one human being. So the fact that there's one human being is an accident about the human that he's one. It's not essential because if it was essential, it wouldn't be possible to have numerous human beings. So it must be something not essential. Okay. Also, furthermore, if unity, the fact that there's one human, let's say, was essential to being a human, then how could they share unity with a horse, a tree, and a stone? So it must be that something non-essential, something accidental. He's only one when he's by himself, and if there's a second one, he's called two. While God is a unity, that, unlike any other unity, always one, a unity which nothing else combines with, okay, because, and, and essentially he says that when we talk about God being one, what that means is that there's nothing like him. So therefore the unity of God itself is, turns into a negative attribute. We'll get more about that later. So his unity, his oneness, is not like the oneness of anything else. It's the most true oneness. Now, when we talk about God's oneness being his essence, what that means is the following. Everything but for God has some multiplicity within it except for him. And God doesn't increase when there's other things. In other words, Ruvain, the person Ruvain, is one person. But now that Shem and Levi Huda enter the room, now he becomes one of many. But when you talk about God, you say, okay, well, you know, God used to be one, but now there's God and the angels and everything he created. Well, there's still not more of God because he is unlike them. While Ruvain is only one when he's by himself and he loses is unity when other people are there while God does never increases and never turns into one he's one in his essence okay that is a very important idea and these are all kavanas it's very very interesting to think about these are all things you should think about you can and should think about when you say Shema and you can get deeper and deeper in the depths of unity and like I said earlier you can study the God for the perplex and really get these ideas but I but for stating it in so methodically and clearly I don't think the Amunaram has any parallel that I'm familiar with.
And now we move on. So that's the unity of God. We have studied um, what really what the what the Rambam calls Maisim Rakova, the ideas of metaphysics that help us understand the unity of God. And now we are moving on to the third Iker. So we covered we've covered thus far of the second essay of the writing. We've covered the existence of God and his unity. And now we're going to talk about the attributes of God. How can God be described? The best way to describe God, the truest way to describe God, is with negative attributes. For example, you can say God is not physical. God's existence doesn't depend on anything else. Nothing is like God. But the fact is that negative attributes can tell us what God isn't, but don't tell us what he is. Now, when we talk to the masses, though, we have to talk about God. But that's in an inexact way. And you have to understand that even though Tanakh and the prophets talk about God in certain ways, they're not truly, it's not the truth, it's just a way that necessary to talk to the masses. Even when we talk about God having limbs, that's part of the rule of the Torah talks in the language of man, meaning in the way that the masses can have an approach to understand God. Anyway, we're still going to talk about God's body, but and of course, as he said, that has to be stated inexactly. While the Torah says that you should be careful, they have not seen any form. And now he goes into um, many other psukim that deal with the attributes of God. Because here, what we're talking about is the attributes of God, meaning how can God be described? So he starts with these. His, his, his text that he's working with is the fact that the prophets used all sorts of attributes for him. For example, it talks about God seeing things. So that's just comparing him anthropomorphically, giving you a sense of God. When we talk about God getting new knowledge, attaining new knowledge, that's again just talking in a language that humans can understand. When we talk about God being angry or being satisfied with something, what that means is that a person either gains, reaches success, or suffers. So when a person suffers, that we call that God being angry. And person, um, when then he talks about when we talk about God in closer or further from us, that's really something about ourselves. And he says a very interesting parable. He says sometimes if you're riding in a ship, and there are mountains facing you, it looks like the mountains are either coming towards you or away from you. Really, you're the one who's moving. And that's why he was the mission. Ed, he says, it's your actions that bring you closer, far from God. Meaning to say, God is never closer, far. It's us. The change is always in us. Okay, now he's going to deal with very specific attributes. The following attributes he wants to discuss what they mean exactly. One, talk about God being one. Talk about God being true. Talk about God being eternal. Okay, Echad Amiti Nitzchi, Chai alive, Yodea knowledge, Rotze, having will, and Yochel having power. Okay, so what do the, all these things mean? Unity we've discussed that it means that it's not like anything else. Now, we mentioned before that a God's unity is his essence. And he says that's a problematic statement because if God's unity is his essence, then when we say God is one, we're really not saying anything. We're just saying God is God. And also, we know that we cannot understand God's essence. At least while we're physical. Maybe after we lose the body, we'll understand God's essence, he says. But um, we can understand that God is one. Okay? So what do we mean then? What do the philosophers mean when they say that God's unity is his essence? So here's what it means. 
What we can know about God is that there's nothing like him. So that's the most we can know about God. And that when we describe God in many ways, we're not trying to add to his essence. While we talk about a person, we say, okay, the person who's sustained, who senses, who speaks, we're, telling, we're adding things that increase his aspects. Why, when we describe God, we're not saying anything about his essence. His essence remains one. So therefore, we can be certain of God's unity, as we have proven. And then we can also perceive from our perspective, from our perspective, we see many attributes. Just like a person who's, um, who's um, cross-eyed can see one thing as being two, because he doesn't have the ability of seeing it correctly. Same thing with our intellect. When we look at this great thing called God, which confuses us, we see we perceive, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing parable. We perceive many attributes. That's because we are not capable, we're not strong enough intellect to really understand um, a perfect unity that doesn't require all this multiplicity, all this various ways of thinking about it. Now, the difficulty to understand things can be from two aspects. Either because things that are um, don't exist, really, like, let's say, time, this space or hylic manner or because they have such existence which is since God is so existent therefore therefore he blinds us like the sun blinds looking at it okay but the truth tells us that his essence is one so when we say his essence that's his essence is unity what it means is that the unity, the attribute unity, is telling us something about God's essence, which we cannot, that essence is something we can't know. Um, while the attributes that we do describe God with, we can say, look, we do sense these things, we know them, except that they clearly don't tell us a multiplicity of God. So basically we're living with this kind of contradiction that cannot be bridged, that we know something about God in truth, in the absolute truth that he's one, and that's something about God's essence, which we can't know, while we experience this multiplicity of God's attributes. The most thing we can say about God is that he exists. And then we talk about his attributes, which are multiple, and they should be negative, of course, saying what he's not. So, he goes into this very interesting idea, which is we said before we can't define God because he doesn't belong to any class. Well, if you say that God exists, then isn't he part of the class of existence, things that exist, and then you could define them of that class, and that's something very deep, which I'm going to uh, skip here. Okay, so going back to the attributes, when we talk about God being one, it means there's nothing like it. When we talk about God being true, Pasek talks about God being true, what does that mean? He says the following, he says, some things last and then cease to exist. Those things are less true because their existence does kind of, doesn't, the idea of their existence doesn't necessarily correspond to the reality. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't exist. Even though the things that exist forever, like the angels, their existence is not due to their essence, it's that they're granted, and therefore their existence is less true because their existence doesn't correspond to their essential reality, it corresponds to the reality that they were given. So therefore, only God's reality, which comes from his essence, is the truth, the most true.
Okay, now he goes into, gets back to that point about why we can't uh, describe God. So, we can't know the essence of God because it doesn't fit into a category. What about describing God in accident? Like saying, you know, Reuben is this size, he's this color. God doesn't have any changes. But what about attributes that describe God's relationships? Is that we can do? That we can do. For example, we can describe God as being the cause of all things. Because that does not, and this is in the Guide for Perplex 2 discusses this, that doesn't lead to any multiplicity in God. Because you could have one thing which is the cause of one thing and caused by another. For example, one person is the son of one person, the father of another one, the uncle of another one, and still only talking about one thing. So therefore, God too, you can talk about in numerous ways as having numerous relationships. You can also talk about God in numerous ways as, as long as you use negative attributes. Okay? For example, you can talk about one person and say he's not a stone, he's not a tree, he's not a horse. It doesn't introduce any multiplicity into the one person. So similarly, we talk about God, we can say he's one, which means there's nothing like him. And when we can say he's eternal, by that we mean to say he's not affected, he doesn't move. Because motion is change. When we talk about God as being true, what that means is that he doesn't cease to exist. When we say he's alive, what does that mean he's alive? This is a fascinating idea he's about to say. He says when we say that God is alive, what that means is that there's nothing like him. And that's because the existence of everything depends on God and is acquired from God. And the most noble of things that exist are the living things. And nothing can acquire from something what that thing doesn't have. It's an amazing point. He says, since life is rooted in God, depends on God, because everything depends on God, then in order for things to have a life, the, the idea of life, the concept of life, must inhere in God. And that's what we mean when we say that God is alive. And this has to do with um, Aristotelian ideas of where, what causes things to happen. Aristotle says that nothing goes from potential to actual except for some other agent where that is actual. So in order for things to be alive, there has to be life which is given to those things and that comes from God. And that's what we mean when we say God is alive. Um, so saying God is alive is a relationship or it's a negation that there's nothing like it. When we say God has knowledge, now here's is an amazing thing. When we say God's not, how is that a negative attribute? Because really what that means is, says uh, the Raya now just to parenthetically, the Ramam discusses this too in the guide. And it says when we talk about God having knowledge, all that means is that he's not ignorant. Now that's obviously complicated because it doesn't not ignorant. Isn't that another way of saying that he knows? Well, we'll see the guide, perhaps we'll go into that. But what the Raya says is that when we talk about God having knowledge, it's a negative attribute. And that's because saying that God has knowledge is another way of saying that God is completely detached from the physical. What? Why is that? Because Ravis has an amazing idea, and to understand this, you have to really get into the concept of the intellect. He says that what stops the intellect from knowing things are physical barriers. A wall, a cloud, or there's water in your eye, or your brain is foggy because you ate food. And um, essentially, what the Ravis is saying is that the intellect essentially can know everything except that it's has these limitations imposed upon it by being attached to the physical those are the physical the barriers 
that are barriers to sensory perception. But since God has no physical barriers, therefore his intellect is unlimited. Okay, so that's what we were talking about God having knowledge. And there's no barrier to God's um, something. I mean, we can't say God's perception because that would be a, a inattribute. Okay, there's a lot to think about here based on this last point that I just made that, you know, when we're talking about what's not limited, well, what is not limited? So how is the Raven really solving the problem of saying God has knowledge by saying it's a negative attribute? You know, it's a negative because there's nothing stopping. But aren't you assuming there's nothing stopping something? Okay, that's something to think about. Now, what are we talking about God's um, omnipotence, his power? So he says, well, now he goes into his astronomy. Remember, the Raven wrote a book about astronomy too, which we don't have. But he goes into the motion of the heavens. The heavens have great power, and motion has to come from a mover. So the mover then, that's what we mean when we say God has power. That um, he's the cause of the motion of the heavens. Now, here he goes into a question whether God is the direct cause of the motions of the heavens, or whether there's a, an intermediary, an angel. But either way, um, if there's an intermediary, then God's power has to be above the power, to higher than the power of the intermediary, and that's what we mean when we say God has power. Now, what do we mean when we say God has will? And here he gets into something that he says is almost something that you can't write about. He says amazing things. What do we mean when we say God has will? So all we mean to say when we say God has will is to, is to say that the existence of things doesn't follow God in a simple, simply natural way, like fire burns food, or cooks food, I'm sorry, or burns clothing. Um, fire, he says, doesn't get the credit for cooking food, nor does it get blamed for burning clothing. Why? Because it acts without thought. God, as we said, has the most absolute thought. And therefore, the most absolute knowledge. And therefore, the existence of the world doesn't follow God by nature, rather by will. Okay? That's what, we, that's what we mean when we talk about will. But, then he uses, as, as his great cavity, he says, the idea of will by God is the opposite. Is the opposite of the idea of will by humans. Because when we talk about will from a human being, what that means is desire. You want something. And why do you want anything? Because you lack it. God doesn't need anything. Everything needs God. And therefore, his will is the opposite of what we think about when we about our will, right? Because our will is what we need, and his will is to give that everything else needs him. Amazing thing. And then he says, not only about will is this true, but um, it's true about everything, that God doesn't have it like other things have. And he says, you know, you're looking in this book, and he says, I can't do more than because to talk more about God's knowledge and God's will is not something that belongs in this book and not all people can fathom it. And he says, look, if I'm going to write, if I'm going to do more here, maybe someone's going to read this book who doesn't understand it properly and he's going to be make an error. Which happened to people who looked at those other books that I'm replacing here. And of course he means uh, I think if you're old and perhaps the Buddhist of Deus too. Even though he says those books don't confuse people, but someone who has a bad understanding of things, bad ability to understand, will explain things in a bad way. And he says these things happened. There were 
negative consequences from the fact that important matters are written on books that are then available for anyone prepared or not to study would have been better that um, it would have been kept oral and only preserved for those people who could understand it and people who put them down in books didn't didn't even and he quotes the Pasuk and Mishle about Kvaidolikim Hakardavar and Acher was Mikatsas Benetia as he looked into he looked into these things with a bad explanation well, we are trying to do the best as a rabbi, and we ask Hashem to lead us in the right way. So it's an amazing point the rabbi says over here that um, you know we barely have this in writing. What the rabbi did give us in writing, he says, there's a lot more here, but I can't just write everything because we're talking about the real, and we're getting into really what God means. Because I mean, talk about God, and not everyone can understand this properly. So this is supposed to be a, a kabbalah, right? a tradition, an oral tradition, which we can't really write too much about. So the, of course the Ram talks about that a lot, about these things that need to be hidden. But here, here we have actually someone talking about the fact that he's writing something reluctantly, and that others wrote too much about it. So in summary, he says, what can we know about God? We know that he's not part of any class, nor does any accident um, apply to God. While his existence is the most clear. And his essence is the most hidden. And by knowing that there's no way to know his essence, while there's no way to deny his existence, we know everything there is to know about the truth of God's existence. Fools, he says, don't know God's essence, but they think that, okay, we don't know God's essence, just like we don't know a lot about the heavens. But those are not impossible to know. But the wise people know what's possible to be known, what's impossible to be known, and what usually is known. And um, we know that they say that it's impossible to know God while we're alive. Okay. Now, this is the um, end of the description of these eight attributes. And he says, you know, maybe there are other attributes, but you have to, again, just like we treated these attributes and dealt with them, make sure that you understand we're not talking about a multiplicity in God. We have to do the same thing for other attributes. Then he talks about the attributes. Then he goes into Psukim, attributes that were, that were revealed he talks about Sukkim that mean that the revelation of that the attribute of, of uh, God's power was revealed to Adam and Yaakov, that God's eternity was was revealed to Moshe, and that's what Eyasha Eya means God will exist forever. Um, what does it mean that there was a revelation? He says they, the prophets, these, these were great people, they knew these attributes even before they were revealed. Okay? But they didn't know which attributes to use, to think about, and to use in prayer. And that's what the revelation was. The revelation was how to relate to God. This is very interesting for understanding Chumash, um, understanding Pesukim and Chumash. And he goes through various Pesukim here. And then he says something about the nature of prophets and what the name, the purpose of the revelation of the name is to them. Because a lot of times we have um, God introducing himself like to Avram, Ani Hashem, and the same thing to Yaakov. So what that means and what, the, what, what that's about, you have to see. He says something here which is cryptic. I'm not going to paraphrase it because uh, I'm not trying to understand it. And then he says, you know, those attributes that the prophets don't use, we are not supposed to use. And that's the Gemara in Brachis, where someone dived into the Yamad and said, okay, and he kept on going and he said, you know, we're not done. Only 
we only use those um, those attributes that the prophets used. Now, the the attribute of unity was mentioned, of course, in Moshe Rabbeinu, and that is the pasuk that we speak about all the time, the pasuk of our faith, which always mentions Hashem Echad, and that what the upshot of this pasuk is that there's nothing like God, and that is the most true thing that we can say about God, and that's why the pasuk Hashem Hashem Echad is so fundamental that's the most important thing, the most fundamental thing we can say about God. To say God is true, knowledgeable, alive, and knowledgeable, he quotes Pesukim for that too. Pesukim about God having will, of course, there are many Pesukim about that that we don't say. So then he says, look, what took the philosophers a lot of work, the Nevi'im, and those that accepted from them had it with the kindness of God. And now we're up to the fourth Icar, and the fourth Icar is going to talk about the actions of God. And in order to understand the actions of God, He's going to take us through um, four chapters. It doesn't end up being quite four chapters. not just clear whether he meant to write another chapter or he's assumed that. But those four chapters, which are going to describe basically how God acts, are going to take us through the existence of angels based on human thought. It's going to prove the existence of angels. Second chapter is going to be the existence of angels based on the motion of the heavens. And then the third, third chapter is going to be about the order of, the, of the reality and how the causal chain from God, and the fourth one is going to be the, the one that I said you know, right, I'm not sure if we have it, what exactly happened to that, is the source of knowledge. So let's jump in and see where we get to here. So he's going to prove the existence of angels, and he's going to prove that from human thought. So he says like this, the human soul first has the potential for knowledge, and then it becomes an actual, has intellect in active. To go from potential to, to being bipolar, to being an actor, is motion. Motion requires a mover. Okay. So that means there must be something that makes the soul have the potential for intellect into the actual intellect. And that which moves something to a certain perfection must have that perfection within itself. So he says like this, for example, a person's born, he doesn't know anything, right? And then he slowly learns ideas. For example, that the whole is greater than the parts, right? Or that two is greater than one. Or that opposites, the little contradiction of opposites, two opposites can't be true of the same subject. And that's something, he says, these ideas are something that people cannot end doubt even if they try. And that a person from those can derive other wisdoms, natural wisdoms, and divine metaphysics. Those are all motion. This is all development of motion. Motion requires something to move it. And um, that thing that moves it has that perfection. So the thing that's moving the soul to become intellect must have intellect. Okay, now we already proved, this is earlier, that the human soul, the intellect, um, is not itself physical, which means then that the thing that makes it become intellect also can't be physical. Okay, so then this we, there we go. That's where we establish the disembodied intellect, which is called the seichel bepoil, the intellect in act two, which then influences the human intellect and makes it perfect. This is the idea of philosophers, the idea of the active intellect, 
And he says, we find Pesukim that say the same thing. And he says a fascinating thing. He says like this. He says, the reason why people don't accept these things is because they're not used to it. And certainly, certainly, he says, if people have a certain idea and they have a name, and then you give it a different name, and they're not used to that name, they, you know, they, they could they could not accept that. For example, Kalev ben Yifune. When you hear the word Kalev ben Yifune, when Jew hears that name, he knows he's a great person. But if you name, call him Mered, he might think, well, who's that? Until... You show him that Chazal said it's one and the same name. Same thing, same thing. The philosophers talk about the active intellect. That's just a name they use. That's just a name they use. While the Arabs, the uh, the Muslims, talk about the Holy Spirit or the the Holy, the um, faithful spirit. I'm not sure what that is. Ruach and the Nevi'im, the prophets before them, called it Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So that's just the same, uh, different names for the same thing. And that is something godly, and that's what we mean when we talk about uh, angels. Okay, we are going to stop here, and we got pretty far in the um, fourth acre, which is uh, explaining basically how reality derives from God, and it starts with angels. That angels we just learned our intellect. We're in the second. We're up to the second chapter of the fourth acre, which we'll resume next time. It looks like the Amunarum being such a dense, important work is going to take us more than four lectures, but we will do what's necessary to, to study this great safer.